I remember when we first came here and Jeff Collins was, Jeff and Darcy Collins were two of the people that came from Ridgecrest out to Cross Point. And their three children were the only children at Cross Point. And Jeff walked through the building. The, this building wasn't here, obviously, but those two buildings over there and just asked God to fill up all the rooms. And I talked to him about a year ago and said, could you kind of slow down on that, that prayer? <laughs> lots and lots of children. Such, such a blessing to see all those kiddos. I'm asking you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18. About two weeks ago, Scott Sutton called me and said, um, I'm going to be gone, talking about this week, and he said, I uh, thought about getting you to do another part of Lamentations. He said, but I've already got the study really prepared and what I want to say. He said, could you do just a standalone study of some kind? Just a one-night thing. I was like, yeah, I can probably figure something out. So this had been on my heart for a while. I ran this by the elders. and So we're going to be looking in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 uh, tonight to begin with. And let's read that passage. Beginning, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two, or three, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, it, it's important to note the context of this passage. Earlier in this chapter, the disciples had asked Jesus who would be the greatest. They were, they were jockeying for position in the, in the kingdom. Jesus explained to them that they had to strive to be the least rather than the greatest. He was telling them to give deference to others rather than focusing on or even demanding what they think they have a right to. And Jesus just warned his disciples prior to this passage to not give offense to others, to be careful how they walked. And then the next passage that we just read is what is often referred to as the principles of church discipline. And Jesus instructed his disciples now how to work through circumstances where someone had actually created an offense. A church discipline should deal with all the problems of true believers. And this is a very important issue for the true survival of the New Testament church, for the, for the first century church and for us today. So what is church discipline? It is the application of biblical principles to true believers that is designed to bring order to the person's life and to the body of believers that we call the church. I once heard Dr. J. Adams make a statement to a large group of pastors and counselors that if your church is not practicing church discipline as outlined by Scripture, then you are not a New Testament church. And there was about 200 to 225 pastors and counselors in that conference. And there were a lot of eyebrows that went up and furrowed at that statement. And there were a number of questions that came out. And Dr. Adams fielded them quite nicely for the whole week. Um, 
Do you think this is an accurate statement? Do you think if, a, if, a, if an evangelical church is not practicing church discipline as outlined by Scripture, do you think that they then are not a New Testament church? Is that a true statement or not? I just heard a cricket. <laughs> yeah, it is a true statement. Why is it a true statement, Robin? You're right. You can't just take part of the gospel and leave other, other, others out and just decide what is applicable. We have, to, we have to embrace the entire measure of Scripture. We have to be true to that. Now, have, have any of you, before coming to Cross Point, ever been in a fellowship where discipline was practiced? Okay, I see a hand, a couple of hands, three hands. What, what, was, what was the attitude? How was that accepted there? Well accepted? Create problems? Yeah, it, 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 it is difficult. Yeah, it is, because it's, it's a painful event. Okay, and we're, we're going to talk about that. Um, I was... Yeah, this is not a life history lesson, I promise, but... You know, I, I grew up in First Baptist Church, Fort Stockton. I was there from the time I was about a month old, my mom told me. Um, and growing up there and then going to Howard Payne, a little Baptist school in, in Brownwood. Um, se- several different churches along the way in that. I was 30 years old before I ever heard any, any message, any, any teaching out of Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20. 30 years of my life. And I don't remember exactly everything that went on before age six, but you know, probably didn't happen then either. Um, why is church discipline not being carried out? What do you think? I mean, it's here in the scripture. So in a, in a large part, there's a, a, a large point, and I don't know what the statistics are, and I'm not even going to try to make anything up. But I will say a large percentage of Evangelical churches basically dismiss this passage. They don't teach through it. They don't focus on it. They, they almost pretend that it doesn't exist. Why do you think that is? Yeah, they're afraid of losing members. Yeah, that, that's one thing. There's, there's, there's a desire for large churches. You know, and if, if, a, if a fellowship practices discipline, one, there may be a few people that are removed from fellowship through that process, but there's others that are just not going to be around. They're going to leave because they don't want to be a part of a place that requires, and not just requires, but teaches a right walk with God and, and, and teaches discipline. They don't want to be a part of that, Jerry. Also, we so often hear about not judging others, so it makes us reluctant to uh, cast our head. It's like we're, we're trying to judge others. When, when I, I got back from that conference, it was in 1986. Okay, I'm old. Nobody said, just, just hush. Um, got back from that conference, and I was telling my mom about it, and I was really excited about what Dr. Adams had taught all week long, and mom said, oh, Morris, be careful. Be careful. And I'd already heard that from several other friends about even going to this conference. Oh, be careful what you bring back. Really? It's, it's Bible, you know. Um, 
But she said, oh, Morris, you know, the Bible says don't judge. I heard my mom say that. And Dr. Adams even addressed that that week. And, you know, if you read the entire passage of, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't say we're not to judge. He says we have, we have to be careful how we judge. Because you look at that, you know, the, the log in your eye and the, the, the speck in your brother's eye. He says, first, remove the log out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly to remove the speck. So he didn't say not judge. He said, be careful how you judge. So, but yeah, that, that's a, that, a misteaching that becomes a, a base principle in a lot of people's ideas in their belief system. And it, it's taught wrongly. You know, so anybody, any other ideas about why it's not being carried out? Mm-hmm. And in some translations, it says disciplined training in righteousness. You know, and it, it's an essential, it's necessary. Um, you know, there's, there, there's one thing, church discipline involves unpleasant events. You know, um, it involves pain. You know, and our society is typically against anything that causes pain. Pain hurts. Okay, if you didn't know that, pain hurts. Okay, you can write it down. And we, we try to shy away from that. But, you know, any kind of training involves discipline. Athletes train, and in their training to build more speed or build more muscle, it involves some painful events. Okay? Um, those of you who have children or have had children or plan to have children... Training your children sometimes involves unpleasant events. Chastisement or consequences of behavior, taking their favorite toy. I mean, there's just unpleasant things that go on. The outcome of the discipline may be painful and it could also result in a complete restoration, which is what we're really looking for in this. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 7, Um, this passage points out that the sin of one person will impact and affect the entire body of believers. In 1 Corinthians 5, reading in verse 1, Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present, and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the entire lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See in verses 6 and 7, Paul is speaking of the undisciplined person at the church in Corinth and he instructed them to get out that influence, remove that influence from among you because it's affecting all of you. 
Now, another reason that church discipline is not being carried out today, and this is where my mom was coming from and, and, and her concern. Church discipline was misused. It was abused in the past. Back in the, the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, and in this, in this particular conference where Dr. Adams was, was teaching, he went and got a number of the church records from some of the New England Presbyterian churches up there. And he was reading some of the accounts of the things that went on. And some of them were just phenomenal. The, the people fasting and praying after someone and just pouring their heart out to, to these individuals who were living in sin and, and basically, you know, stiff-arming God. And just, I mean, doing it right. And then there were time after time after time after time where, you know, the account was, well, we got together and they basically had what was referred to as, as backdoor revivals, you know. And my mom had experienced, had seen some of this in the church where she grew up, where somebody would get upset with somebody else and they'd get their little group together and they'd, move, they'd meet in a back room somewhere in the dark at night you know, and they'd, they'd work through it, and they would vote the person out, and then they would announce it. Ooh, well, we got rid of so-and-so last night. We're going to be a lot better off. And, and that's, that was my mom's experience with, with this passage, with these principles. And it was so offensive because it was misused. You know, so people, people shy away from it because it was abused for, you know, a long period of time. See, we've got to remember that we need, to, we need to view this passage and the principles of church discipline as a God-given right that each one of us have to walk in a disciplined, orderly life. See, it is, if we approach this properly, if, if I'm messing up and Lynn hears about it and Lynn comes up and says, Morris, we need to talk. And I stiff arm him, say, you know, get away from me, get out of my face because I feel like my rights are being violated because he's coming, how dare you get in my business? You know, but the reality, if we look at scripture rightly, then I would embrace that saying, it is my right for you to discipline me because it was given by God. Now, how many of us are actually going to take that stand if we're in the middle of sin? Probably not many of us, <laughs> you know, but that's, that, that should be our attitude. It is a God-given right for each of us to be able to walk rightly and truly with, with the Lord. Um, another reason we don't practice church discipline, we as in terms of the collective church, people don't want it because of the basic anarchy that, li- that exists within each one of us. Since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned, from that point on, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl has within each of us a basic anarchy that we don't want to be told what to do. While we are created to be dependent upon God, that sin nature and that basic anarchy drives us to be independent from God and from anybody else trying to tell us what to do. I want to be my own person. I mean, you hear every generation has their own little slogan, but that's, that's a major part of that. But see, when... And if the leadership in the church fails, well, first of all, if, if my own discipline fails, disorderly, there's going to be a disorderly surge in my life. If, if the leadership in the church fails, there's going to be a disorderly surge that follows very naturally just because of who we are as human beings. In Exodus 32, verse 25, 
Aaron's leadership failed, what happened? What happened after Aaron's leadership failed? Huh? Yeah, poof, this calf came out of the fire. Yeah. Now, there was, a, there was an absolute disorderly existence that, that came out of Aaron letting the people loose. And that's exactly what Exodus 32, 25 says. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Aaron was held, held accountable and responsible for the people going nuts. And he didn't discipline them. Okay. Now, the fourth thing. There is a loss of authority and recognition of that authority in the church. And that comes from, again, that basic anarchy. We no longer recognize too often. We no longer recognize the leadership of the church as God ordained, as God placed. Okay. It's just another guy up there that preaches on Sunday mornings and don't get in my face. That, that, that's kind of the basic attitude and idea that people have. And instead of, and, you know, a, a lot of my Christian heritage, I'm really, I, I, you know, really love a lot of the Christian heritage that I grew up under. Some of it, though, was pretty, pretty weak. And this was one of those. You know, I saw people, you know, leave the church for whatever reason. And we, we have a tendency, we had a tendency, and it still happens in a lot of fellowships, to beg people to come back. Please come back. Please come back. Rather than saying, you need to be in fellowship, come back. An authoritative statement of, you belong, you belong to this body, you need to be here. There's a loss of that authority. you know. And sometimes the leadership bails on that. Why? Because the people that they're placed over don't want to be disciplined. And so like Aaron, they let him loose. I think we sometimes, because of the passion of the people don't have respect for their authority, then they think if they discipline their jobs on the line, they're fixing to have to pack up and go somewhere else because the people are just out. So yeah. they have no respect for the office of that person mm-hmm. that God has placed. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that. How, how many times have we heard Ben pray as he's praying for another fellowship or another pastor that one, one of the things that he consistently prays is that that ministry for that man does not become a J-O-B. You know, when it becomes a job, then that fear of my security is gone because that office, that paycheck, that, you know, that, that becomes a security rather than basing their security on who God is and, and, and what God has called them to. And then we've already talked about this. There's a desire for big churches. If you exercise a discipline, you're going to reduce the numbers. Some people just don't want to be a part of a church that, that practices discipline. And what if the person coming under disciplinary focus is the largest financial contributor? Does that make a difference? Okay. I, I wish we could go, no, it, but yes, too often it does. And so... That gets excused. And, and we see this in our society. You know, who is it that gets away with murder in our society? <laughs> okay, good point, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> but it's the people that have money. It's the people with prestige. You know, it's the people who are superstars in, in whatever, whatever part of life that they are. You know, 
They got money, they get away with it. Okay. Now, there are some excuses for not using the principles of church discipline, and I've heard these. Okay, one of them is, and, and, and I will do a direct quote. Now, Morris, it's 1988. I remember the year. It's 1988. We just need to love this person. Um, in fact, I opened my Bible to Matthew 18, and I said, would you read verses 15 through 20? And he did. And I said, I don't see that date anywhere. He's like, oh, you know what I mean. We just, we just, and still just kind of stuttered a little bit. See, there's no timeline. God's word is just as relevant today as when Jesus spoke those words himself. Okay, for 2014, it is just as vital, it is just as real, it is just as effective Today, as it was when Jesus spoke those words. There's, there's no end, other than when Jesus comes back, that these scriptures are applicable to our lives, and this is the way we're supposed to walk. Okay. Um, the second excuse that I've heard is, well, my church won't do it. If the church refuses to move in a disciplinary manner, then the church needs to be disciplined. We've seen time and time and time again in Scripture and even, even in, in modern day life when, when a fellowship or when a people are refusing to be disciplined and refusing to follow God, God's going to provide the discipline. If they're not disciplined, God will provide the discipline. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's really bad. Um, case in point, there was an 18-year-old girl Went through high school, kept her, her, her morals pure, kept her, her promise of, of, of purity through her high school. She went to college the first semester, got into you know, a little bit of a party mode, went, a little too, went way too far one night, compromised her principles and got pregnant. She came back for Christmas break and she was about, about eight weeks pregnant and asked, what should I do? Have you asked forgiveness of God? Yes. Have you repented? Yes. Doesn't take the pregnancy away, but the forgiveness was there. Said, have you told your parents? Yes. They're they're standing behind me. They're going to support me. They're we're we're working through this. It's hard. A lot of tears. I said, now you need to go to your pastor, and you need to talk to your youth minister and your pastor. And I I would suggest collectively get your parents and y'all go go talk, talk to them about it. And I said, then you need to go before the body in just a family meeting and confess your sin. She's like, oh, really? And I said, yeah, because in a couple more months, the secret's going to be out. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be able to hide that. And if it's not dealt with up front, then it's just going to be the rumor mill going, going crazy. And she did that very thing. She went home and talked to her parents. And parents made an appointment to go talk to the pastor and the youth minister. And Next day, the pastor called me and he said, are you crazy? Was his first words to me. And I said, well, that's probably debatable in some circles. Why do you ask? But I knew what was coming next. He said, I, will, he said, I am not going to stand that little girl up in front of the congregation for derision and ridicule. I refuse. And then he said, this is 1988. Okay, the two examples were from the same guy. Um, and I said, well, and he said, why would you even think about doing that? I said, because... If it's brought out up front, 
in a God-honoring way. It's going to kill the rumor mill. And you're going to invite the people to pray for this girl and surround her and encourage her and love her. Because she's repented. She's confessed her sin. And now she has to be embraced. He refused. And so about three months later, the rumor started. Jaws started popping. You know, the murmuring started. And within another month, she was gone. She moved out of town. She couldn't stay. So the pain of not following what should have been followed in the beginning was worse. And he literally held that girl up to derision and, and ridicule, which under his statement he was trying to protect her from. Oh, yeah. And they are held absolutely accountable to God because they're put in that position and for the things that, not for what people choose to do, but for, for what they knowingly allow to exist in the body, they're held, they're, there's an accountability there. There was a responsibility. Just, as, just like his parents, I'm not responsible for how my children turn out, but I'm responsible for what I knowingly allow them to be exposed to and what I introduce them to. So... Yeah, same thing with the pastor. So there's, I mean, it's, it's a serious situation. Okay. Um, the third reason, the third excuse that I've heard is, well, you know, the situation has just gone too far. Again, I go back and read scripture and it doesn't give limits. <laughs> you know. And if, if the situation has gone too far, that's God's call, not ours. You know, we're to proceed in the principles that God gave us regardless of what's going on because we're still looking for the end result and that is reconciliation. It's not about getting rid of people. Okay, so I'm going to ask the question, why will discipline work in 2014? Why? Why will it? Based on what we've said. Yeah, it's God's word. God commands it. Okay, end of story, we can leave. <laughs> We're not really yet. Uh, but God commands it. It is, it is an absolute. So God commands it. And then, like I said earlier, God provides it as a gift to us. Again, that's kind of, you know, from, especially from our Western culture thinking, that's kind of backwards to think that it's my right, it's a gift to be disciplined. You know, I remember one time my dad, um, it, it was one of those painful events, <laughs> I'll put it that way, and he said, this hurts me more than it does you, and I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, <laughs> and it stayed that way for a while until I said exactly the same words to our oldest son, John, and he had that look on his face, and I recognized the look, and I said, well, maybe I need to explain this, so I did, you know, so... Discipline is painful. It needs to be painful for those who are, who are giving it. <clears throat> but again, to see it as a gift so that we can walk rightly and be separate from the world. Not separated from the world, but being different from the world. We're sanctified. We're to be set apart. And discipline is one thing that sets us apart, a disciplined life. So God desires his people to be disciplined. That's the third thing. God desires it. <clears throat> 
Um, again, if there's no discipline in the church, God will discipline. If there is no discipline in the church, there is no difference between the church and the world. Has anybody ever heard that? Well, why would I go there? I don't see any difference between the people that go in there every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and my life when I never darken those doors. I don't see any difference. Okay? Too often that's a true statement because there is no difference. But a people who are living a disciplined life, there is a difference. And you don't have to speak it with words necessarily. People will see a difference in your life. And if you're walking that, there's going to be sometime, someplace, somebody's going to walk up and say, you know, Tracy, there's just something different in your life. What is it? And then you get to plant a seed. You know, God does that, and that's what happens as we're walking in his word. There is a difference between us and the world. And it's not a in-your-face, you're not in the club kind of difference, but it is a loving approach to people and their hurts and their pains and the things that we do to help them out. And then they see, wow, there really is something different. And so it draws people, not to me, it draws people to God. And God draws people to himself through that. But see, we tend to collectively not want that big difference because we really don't want to live under that antithetical relationship that God created in the, in the word. Uh, antithetical is just a fancy word for either or. <laughs> okay. Um, but I like the word. It's just, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Ben loves words. I do too. So um, God says it's either holy or it's evil, either of God or of Satan. You're either for me or against me. There's no gray area, but we like the gray areas. We know that God's over here, and we know that Satan's, nobody's over there. Satan's over here, okay, and I'm somewhere, I'm a little closer to God than over there, so I'm comfortable in my gray area. See, God doesn't create gray areas. It's either or. There's not a fence to sit on. If you're sitting on the fence, you're on the wrong side, you know. That, there, there, there's just not, the, it's not there. There's no gray we just want to be in between. But Jesus established this very clearly in Matthew 12, 30 when he said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's pretty clear. Now, there, there's a couple of ways to look at discipline in this. There are, there are two basic types of discipline. There's preventative discipline and there's remedial discipline. Uh, what, is, what is preventative discipline? What does that look like? Okay, let's back it up a little bit before that. Okay, preventative dis discipline even happens before that, and that's the things that we do every day the right way. It's as we're walking, but that's going to be the next step, Robin, so you're, you're just a step in front of me. Uh, it's the things that we do every day that we're, we're training ourselves in righteousness. Okay, that's preventative discipline. 1 Timothy 4.7 says that we're to conform to the, to the law of God for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy 4.7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That's preventative discipline. Okay, the things that we do on a daily basis that keep us walking in the direction with God is that very thing. Jerry already mentioned 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness 
so that the man and woman of God may be complete and equipped. Another verse another ver in the New American Standard says adequate for every good work. You know, an adequate almost sounds less than enough. But if you really look at the word adequate, it means adequate. It's sufficient. It's all you need. It's adequate. But it almost sounds like, eh, gee, that's really not enough. Because we like, we like the extra. You know, we don't want just enough cake icing to cover the cake. We want it two inches thick. Some of us do. You know. <laughs> all right. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 12 speaks of an undisciplined life and contrasts that to an ordered life. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 12. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but in order to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Let's take out an ad in the paper and say that. <laughs> you talk about attack, there would be a lot. But it's talking about the ordered life versus the undisciplined life. And Paul says that's what we're to do. So that's the, that's the preventative discipline, the things that we do on a daily basis and a consistent basis in our, in our life, study, prayer, walk, ministry to others, you know, the discipline of solitude, spending time with God alone, but then going out and ministering to other people and giving to others, okay? That's, that's preventative discipline. The remedial discipline is when the preventative discipline is not going on. And that's what Robin's talking about. When somebody has stepped out and you go to them, you're like, eh, you need to come back. Part of that is, that's, that's some remedial stuff. Now, there's three reasons for this type of discipline. First of all, for God's glory. That's the biggest one. Okay. His name is at stake. Secondly is the church's welfare. How can we minister to the world when the world sees no difference in us? We talked about this earlier. You know, if there's no difference, they're not going to be a, you know, drawn to that. And then the third thing is the offender's restoration. Keep in mind that the principles of church discipline, are, it's never about, in the end, getting rid of someone. That's not it. It's about restoring that person to right relationship with God and with other believers. It's about the restoration of the offender. It's never about getting rid of someone. If you don't hear anything else tonight, please hear that. Discipline is not about getting rid of people. It's about restoring them. Okay. All right. If you can put a little, you know, this, this diagram, I don't know if you'll be able to make it out. Y'all are used to Ben's handwritten things. Okay. Uh, this, this is a, a diagram that kind of explains the process of church discipline. Up at the top you see there's, there's a part that you treat, you treat the individual as a brother then you get to that line, then you treat them as a heathen. Right, we're going to talk about what that is. Underneath that, you see step one is self-discipline. Two is one-on-one. -on -one. Three is one, on, one or two others. And then you see another line, and everything, one, two, and three is informal discipline. 
Okay, then starting with four, it's the elders in the body. That begins the formal discipline. And then fifth step is, is the world. Now the two widening lines that start at the left and go out just indicates that there's more and more people being involved. Okay, So it starts off with step one of self-discipline. That's what we were talking about earlier. That's one of the preventative things. And in, in many books about discipline, this one's not even mentioned. It just starts with step two. But, I mean, let's face it, step one is self-discipline. That's what God calls us to do. And if we go back to the, hey, did you see that sermon of Ben's? You know, when he went back and looked at not the dead splattered chicken that got hit really hard. <laughs> no, not that part of it. But Romans 7 verses 14 and following, when, when Ben pointed out rightly that Paul was talking about in Romans 7 his life under the law and contrasted that to his life under grace provided by Jesus Christ. You know, because of that, we have the absolute freedom from the bondage of sin because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. We don't have to struggle with, quote-unquote, besetting sins. We've been freed from that through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. Okay, then, if that fails... We go to step two, and, and Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go. This is an imperative. The word go is actually the Greek word that means, that's, that's hupago, and it means to go directly, quickly, quietly, without fanfare, without drawing attention to yourself. In other words, you go one-on-one. -on -one. Nobody else knows about it. Okay? Say that again. I didn't hear you. Uh, I think so, because as, as pointed out by, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, if there's a sin in the body, it's going to impact... The whole body. Okay, now, if you see somebody, if you see two other people involved in something, you want to be careful. You can be a peacemaker, but you don't want to, you don't want to go and grab somebody else's offense and try to own their offense and get involved. So, I mean, it can get a little dicey sometimes doing that, but this is talking about an absolute offense against you specifically, and it may be in the body, okay, which is against you, and you're to go quietly, which means you don't go and get 15 friends and tell them about it, and get their opinion, what should I do? Matthew 18 says what you're supposed to do. You don't have to get anybody else's opinion. If there is an offense, you go and you go quietly. Because then if you get it resolved, how many people know? Two. Plus God. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be. A, I said, "Is it right for me to tell you?" He said, "Absolutely." 
sometime later, uh, I realized that uh, the elders had called that person in and talked to him, and it was a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. But that person, realizing that there was an issue, called and made amends with that person. That person called and thanked me, and, and the one that had the member here also called and uh, mm-hmm. apologized to me. And th- I was I couldn't believe it. I was yeah. so Yeah, to, to keep it small. Yeah, and then in, in, it's it's not a it's not a legalistic thing that if you have, if if you've talked with an elder or something, you haven't violated necessarily. Because again, the principle is to keep things small. And if it was if it was told to broadcast it, it's like eh, you know maybe there was a misunderstanding. So, and that even that even actually falls under uh, a, a slightly different principle in in Luke seventeen three. Because Luke 17.3 sounds like an identical passage, but it's not. Okay, it's, it's somewhat, it is parallel. But Luke 17.3 says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now at first reading, it sounds like, well, that's the same thing. But no, if you look at the tense, and this is where you, know, you really have to, you have to dig into these things sometimes. What Luke 17.3 is saying, what Jesus is saying there. If you think there may be an offense, then you go quietly and investigate. This is not, Luke 17.3 is not about an absolute known offense. That's Matthew 18.15. Luke 17.3 is, if there might be an offense, go quietly, privately, check to see if there's an offense. If there is, then you can work it out. If there's no offense, it was a misunderstanding. And it gets straightened out. But see, there are more people who are separated and divided because of misunderstandings that are never approached. They never talk about them. And they, they spend years separated. I had that experience with one of my best friends in college. Because of a misunderstanding on my part, our relationship was broken for four, over four years. If Dwayne called the house and Kendra answered the phone, she says, Dwayne, I said, tell him I just walked, I left and I would step outside so she wouldn't have to lie. I still made her lie, okay, but, you know, um, and it was, it was simply a misunderstanding. When we finally got together, when God finally got through my thick skull, that I needed to talk to him, and it was because of a tragedy in his life. We were able to talk through that, and he's like, no, that's not what happened at all. I was like, I'm an idiot, because I felt like one at that point, and I had been, okay. So, one-on-one you go, and you try to get it resolved. If that's not, yikes. If that's not resolved and there's, there's no movement and you go, you go time and it's not a one-time thing, you go time and time and time and time and time and time again. If there's no progress, then you take one or two with you. So you're at the next step. Now the one or two initially are counselors. Okay, If I've got a problem with Jerry and I go and talk to him and he says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, yes, you do. And I just stay heated on that and we're not making any progress, well, then I go and get a couple of other guys, and we go, and they listen to my story, and they listen to Jerry's story, and they look at me and say, Morris, <laughs> you blew it. You're completely wrong in this. So they, they take the role of counselor. Okay, but if Jerry has offended, and he's just stiff-arming me, then I take a couple of people that I know Jerry will trust, and people that I will trust, and I'm, just, I'm not just taking my camp with me. But then they work as counselors to try to reconcile that. 
If there is no reconciliation in that process, then yes, they then serve as witnesses. Because if there's no progress then, we go to the next step, we move from informal discipline into formal discipline, and we take it to the church. The first step in taking it to the church, we take it to the elders. The elders are informed by the witnesses and by the, by the offendee, one who was offended, as to what's going on. The elders then are praying for the offender, going and talking to the offender, trying to get that resolved and trying to work through that. And it gets a timely process and you keep going. If there is then still no progress, then it's taken to the church. And the elders come to the church body and they explain the situation. And the church body becomes involved and they're praying for the offender. And they're, they're encouraging them. If they refuse to even listen to the church, then we go to step five and they're removed from fellowship. Okay, the person is turned over to the world. He is treated as a heathen, as a non-believer. And this means you do not eat or fellowship with this person as a brother or a sister in Christ. Okay, and you think, wow, that's harsh. Yeah, it is. It is harsh because discipline has to, there has to be a sting. Because it's that sting of being removed from fellowship that if that person truly belongs to God, they're going to desire and come back. I, please take me back in. And we've had some of those situations here at Crosspoint where there have been individuals saying, please, I can't stand this anymore. Please take me back in. And just as removing someone from fellowship is done in a formal manner, bringing them back into fellowship is also done in an equally formal manner. In solemn matter. And here at Crosspoint, we have a fish dinner, which is sweet. It is incredible. Um, and they're reconciled, not as second-class church members, but they're reconciled and restored to where they were before, and that is in full, unashamed membership, not secondary members. But they're restored completely in good standing. You know, and Paul talks about that prayed for conclusion in 2 Corinthians 2 verses 5 through 8. And he says, now if someone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. He says it's enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So someone who comes back and is repentant and they're reconciled, they're to be reconciled completely, not held as a second class member. No, they're, they're restored completely. They're restored formally. Now, are there sins that require discipline and sins that do not require discipline? Yeah, they all require discipline. But see, it's not the sin, and you know, if, if, if we're not careful, we can start doing things that God never did. We can categorize sins pretty easily. Well, it's just a little white lie. No, it's a lie. You know, and well, it's just, you know, it's just five miles an hour over the speed limit. 
God, I just heard some toes crunch on that one. Um, <laughs> or, <laughs> back up, Morris. Okay. But, but we, we do, though. We, kinda, we, we categorize it. We categorize the little sins and the big sins. God doesn't do that. God calls sin, sin. Okay. And it's not the sin that requires the discipline. It is the refusal to repent of the sin that requires discipline. So see, it's, it's not the sin itself. It's the refusal to turn away from that. It's staying wrapped up in that. That's what needs discipline. What are the results of church discipline? What are some of the results? There's what? Okay, there's a restoration back to fellowship. What happens before that? What if there's not restoration? What does it cause? Yeah, yeah, it's, it can cause a separation, okay? If, if we go through the process of discipline with an individual, it creates a separation because they're no longer part of the fellowship. If we don't do that, it can cause, as Mike said, it can cause a church split. There's, there can, it can be a division, okay? But regardless, discipline in our lives on a day-by-day basis creates a separation or division for us from the world because we're supposed to be different than the world. Not separated out of the world, because we still live in the world, and we have to make an impact in that, but we can't be the same as the world. There has to be that separation division. The next thing is that there's a purging of the people. When, when discipline is not applied, as in the case of Aaron, when he didn't discipline the people, and maybe his fear was, maybe I'll be out of a job. <laughs> I'm the high priest, and if they don't like what I'm telling them to do, maybe they're going to hire somebody else to be the high priest. You know, um, so there was some fear on his part. Okay, so he was afraid of of what might happen of the painful events. But the purging of the people later was much more severe than would have happened if if Aaron had disciplined them in the first place. Because what happened? Yeah, but even before that, the Levites strapped their sword onto their thigh and they went and killed their dad, their mom, their aunt, their uncle, their grandfather, their son, their son, their daughter. Thousands of people died at the sword. So the purging of the people was much more severe because they were let loose. And then ultimately, that, 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 whole, that whole attitude of you know, grumbling went on and then, you know, there was a million graves in that, four, you know, sandy graves in that 40-year cycle. The golden calf incident was a serious thing. Now there's three factors, and I want to finish this real quickly. There are three factors for moving to further steps in discipline. First of all, first of all is contumacy. Just that absolute refusal to, to recognize God's authority. The, the, the pushing against God's authority, is, 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 that, that's contumacy of saying, nope, 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 read, you know, speak to the hand. I don't want to talk to you anymore. That's when we move to the next step. The next thing is public knowledge. Okay? Sometimes, let's say, for example, if something in my life just blows up and the next, you know, tomorrow morning, Morris's story is published on the front page of the Herald Banner. 
with all the gory details. Okay, can, can we go to step two where it's one-on-one? Nah, because all of Hunt County knows and anybody else that goes online. So because of public knowledge, we have to enter that situation where it already is in the public, in, in the public venue. So then it just goes to the church. Okay. So public knowledge has an impact on that. And then the other thing is divisiveness. In Titus 3.10, Paul says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So someone who's being divisive, this is the only time when speed and discipline is, is kicked into high gear. You know, all the other times I said, you go and you prayerfully go and you go back and you go back and you go back and you keep trying to move and you keep trying to talk to them. But if it's a divisive situation, divisive in nature, you don't do that. Paul says you speak to them once, you speak to them a second time, then you take them out. Not take them out, but you put them out. Titus 3.10. Now, the last point that I'm going to make, and then we're going to end because it's five after. Um, what about disciplining someone in leadership? Is that doable? Hmm? It should be, yeah, it is. Not should be, but it is absolutely doable. But we need to do this. 1 Timothy 5.19. And this is for the elder. Okay? Do not admit a charge or accept a charge against an elder except by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So for the elder the requirements for accepting a charge is stepped up. Why? Ben and Scott and Brad stand up here and they deliver Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, and sometimes they wear a target, <laughs> either on their back or on, maybe on their front. And on, because they're there and very public and they're speaking and someone gets wrinkled about what's said, they then make a charge. And so God says, in that, you don't accept a charge except for two or three witnesses. Now, if, if a leader is disciplined, I said earlier, if someone is disciplined and they repent and they come back and they're restored, what about somebody in leadership? If somebody in leadership is removed from fellowship and they're brought back in, are they restored to their earlier authoritative role? No. They're restored as a member in good standing. But if you look at the qualifications for elder and deacon, it says they're to be tried, they're to be tested, they're to be examined. So they come back in good standing, and if they aspire to that office again, it may be sometime later that they can do that. And so it doesn't disqualify them, but they're not put back in that, in that role because there may still be a struggle with that sin. And so that, that has to be done very, very carefully. Okay, so again, keep in mind that regardless of what the disciplinary measure is for, the end result is always restoration. It's never simply about getting rid of someone. It's about restoring to that person to right relationship with God and right relationship with the body. That should be our prayer. And folks, if we're involved in a disciplinary measure and it is not ripping our guts out, then we need to stop and re-examine where we are because we're probably doing the wrong thing. It needs to be as painful for those who are, exhibit, who are exercising that discipline as the one who's on the receiving end. You know, just like my dad said when he spanked me that time. He said, this hurts me more than it does you. I didn't understand that, but I do now. Um, and we need to have that same attitude in this body and in anybody that's practicing discipline. 
If it's not an absolutely gut-wrenching situation and just agonizing, then the people in leadership need to step back because they're probably going in the wrong direction. Okay, any, oh, I'll entertain one question quickly, but we've got kids already banging on the doors. Any questions? And I'll be glad to talk to you afterwards too. So let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for the principles that you give us in your word. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that leads us into the truth of your word so that we can understand what you mean. We can understand how you want us to walk. Father, as a people, I pray that you help us walk as a disciplined people, not robots, but walking in your principles and loving and ministering to people and helping those around us, making a difference in our community. Father, help us as brothers and sisters in this fellowship be so interested in loving in one another that we're in each other's business a lot. Because it's my right to have these folks here that are part of this body to examine me and confront me when I'm stepping out in the wrong direction. Father, help us have that attitude. Help us have that loving understanding of your word. Thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray that you watch over our elders and their wives as they're traveling this week. I pray that they have a great experience in this conference that they're at. Father, I pray for Derek as he's climbing the mountain this week, preparing to, to deliver the word on Sunday morning. Father, help us be attentive and pray for him and continue to lift him up. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.